I am so fascinated with the men and women that decide uh, to have the courage or to work on the courage to get in front of the camera. I love actors. I, I mean, it's part of my job, yes, but at the same token, even as a moviegoer, I love actors. Um, and rightfully so, right? I mean, it's the, f the first reason why you go see a movie. Who's in it? Who's playing the character? Who am I going to look at on screen? And the general public has a, a fascination with these people. These people that have the courage to sit, stand, to jump, to hang on the outside of an airplane in front of the camera. Who could do that? And I think ultimately it's because most of us uh, just can't find that courage. Most of us don't like to be in front of the camera. Although I think a lot of that has changed these days with iPhones and uh, everybody doing selfies and shit. But, you know, <laughs> most of us don't want to be in front of the camera without doing a duck face. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so episodes like today, I love because I get to sit down, have a one-on-one -on -one with a working actor and uh, learn something. And uh, I hope you guys get to learn something too. Welcome. You are listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Pesci. This is my show. Come on in, grab a seat, grab a beer. Uh, you might want to check the cooler for one of those Bear Republic ales that we have in there. Uh, they're really fucking good. Um, and uh, let's hang out. Um, today's guest is a working actor. He has done a boatload of uh, independent features. Um, and he has, comes from an interesting background. He uh, was born and grew up in Boston. So he's another Boston dude. Lived there for a short period of time, as you'll hear. Um, but then also had a career as a pro athlete. Uh, he played hockey as a pro athlete, which is fascinating. So uh, we go into qu quite a bit of detail on that. And we talk about what it's like to be an athlete and what it's like to deal with injuries. And then we uh, make the crossover to acting. My guest today is Tyler Gallant. Tyler joins me over the internet today. Um, and um, if you guys are someone that is uh, trying to get in front of the camera, if you're someone that wants to be an actor, if you're someone that, more importantly, if you're a director that wants to learn how to talk to actors and communicate with them, I think today's episode will really speak to you. Um, and a big shout out to everybody who follows me on Instagram at Mike Petchy and follows the podcast at In Love With The Process Pod on Instagram. Uh, there I have been keeping you guys up to date on all the new projects that I've been working on, all the new stuff that we're doing here at the show. We've been running contests. We've been setting up all sorts of uh, merch items. Like how many of you got your hands on one of the pins, one of the official ILWP pins? Um, you guys have been sending me videos. If you haven't sent me a video yet, send me one. I'm curious to see who bought uh, the additions from uh, Zach, from Zach Matthews. Um, yeah. Big shout out to everybody doing there. And you know what? That is the place I go to talk to you. So if you have any questions about the show, you have any comments, if you have suggestions for guests, that's where to go. Head on over to at Mike Petchy on Instagram. Send me a note and I'll try to get to it. I'm very busy this week. I'm trying to lay down a bunch of podcast episodes um, because I will be taking off on the back end of August. So I'm going to try to stack the queue uh, with as many episodes as possible. So uh, send me some suggestions for guests. Um, and uh, that being said, let me not drag this out any further. This is a great conversation. Strap yourselves in. 
Uh, crank up your headphones. We got to crank those guys up to 11. Hopefully you have some noise canceling ones on so that you're shutting out the rest of the world. And I'm just going to give you guys a couple of technical warnings with this. We had a couple of technical issues, which I'm sure I'll be able to iron out with some of the noise cancellation, but there are moments where one of my doorbells rings and all that kind of stuff. Just deal with it. <laughs> you know, it's one of those days where I was trying to make a perfect and, you know, life just seeps its way in. Um, but anyway, Grab those noise-canceling headphones, strap in, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Tyler, finally, get you on the show. How are you, buddy? I'm good. It's good to be on here, finally. <laughs> yeah, it's been a little bit of an effort, but you're here, and I'm excited. I'm excited to finally sit down and chat with you. We've been talking on uh, Instagram for a little while now. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's great to be on. Um, yeah, I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, man. So uh, you're originally from Boston, is that correct? Originally, yes. Uh, what part of Boston were you in? Uh, just outside of the actual city. I'm from a town called Wellesley. Oh, I know Wellesley. See, I grew up in Framingham. So yeah, I know oh, where you are. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, dude. Yeah. Grew up in Framingham and then, uh, moved into Boston proper and then lived in Watertown for years. So yeah, I was there for quite some time. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah, man. How long were you in Boston? Um, I was born there and I lived there until I was nine and then, um, my family relocated to uh, Arizona. Oh wow! For, um, my dad's work. Yeah, very cool, man. Very cool. So um, let's catch up our listeners uh, to the man behind uh, Tyler here. And and how did you get into the business? How did it all start for you? I uh, started when I was uh, seven years old. My um, my older cousin Dennis, who's been in the business almost his whole life. Um, he, um, he was in film school and, and he was, um, always making projects. And, uh, so he would kind of recruit, you know, friends and family to, to get in his projects. Mm -hmm. And, um, whenever we would have uh, family get togethers or whatever, he would just, you know, get us and just, uh, put us in his stuff. And so a few of his projects, he needed a, um, a young kid. And so he just pretty much told me I was going to be in his movie. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and that's kind of how it started. And I, I really liked it. That's cool, man. Oh, yeah. What kind of projects were they? Were they like, like larger projects or like indie pieces or what kind of stuff were you guys doing? Um, yeah, they were indie pieces for um, when he was uh, at film school. Oh, right, right, right. Um, and uh, yeah, the first one I ever did was a, um, 
a horror piece that he he wrote and um i played this demonic child <laughs> and <laughs> and i was it was a funny story because i was you know i was seven years old and um you know my my mom like will not watch scary movies like she's terrified of scary movies she wants nothing to do with them <laughs> and um so i go and do this movie and then my cousin was all excited and he's like you know jan let's um let's take a look i, I want to show you the the movie that i just did with tyler and and so he showed it to my mom. My mom was absolutely horrified. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, it was it was pretty funny. I I ended up like I killed everyone in the movie. Like I killed like all seven people in the film. <laughs> and uh, so my mom was just horrified. And she's like, I don't know if I want you doing any more movies with Dennis. <laughs> uh, but then you had the itch, right? At that point, you loved it. I loved it because I mean I was. You know, I was a kid like many that has, you know, a big imagination and I was always playing pretend and, and I was doing that on my own. And, you know, Dennis was a pretty good salesman. He was like, well, you can play pre pretend you're just going to do it on screen. <laughs> He's like, this is, um, this is what you're going to be playing and this is what you're going to be saying. And, um, yeah, after that movie, I was hooked. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> well, how, so your mom wasn't into it though. So how long did you have to wait before you could uh, reprise your roles in front of the camera? Oh, um, I, um, I didn't wait long. I was right back at it again, quick. I already, I did the sequel of it within like, <laughs> within a few months. So, um, yeah. And you know, she was, you know, my mom just hated the horror movie. She just told us, she goes, you know, if you're going to do another one, just, I don't want to see it. Don't show it to me. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it was fun. I enjoyed it. That's cool. And so when you, uh, when you were in high school or, um, when you were in school, did you take, um, you know, theater or did you do any sort of acting stuff or? I did. Yeah. I, um, I liked theater. I did plays in middle school. Mm -hmm. Um, I did some in high school and then I studied, um, theater and film in university. Oh, nice dude. And, um, so I did that. And then, um, I coupled that with, uh, what actually paid for college was, um, ice hockey. Oh, right. Uh, That's right. You played professional hockey. That's right. Yeah. So I, my dad was a former pro and, and so he got me into hockey and, um, you know, acting was always my first passion, but I was just really naturally good at hockey. Mm. And, um, and so I went to, you know, I got my scholarship for hockey and played that and I got an offer to go play pro and, but all during college, you know, I was doing theater and I was doing film projects and, and all that. But then when I left college and I was playing pro, I was like always, telling the organization i'm like hey if you guys ever need any like if you guys are ever doing commercial spots and you need players like i would love to mm -hmm. to do that mm -hmm. so i started getting back in front of the camera i did some commercials like sponsorship commercials for like powerade and and uh barbasol and adidas and reebok and cool uh, yeah so i i stayed there and then a few of my buddies were in film school at the time so in the summers um, when I was in the off season, I would go act in their, their either student films or, or whatever. Nice. Nice. Dude. So, yeah. 
Wild, yeah. wild. Okay, so then that's like, that's going to be two different sides of your brain, right? So you're talking about, uh, you know, practicing for professional sports. That's all about routine and rhythm and, uh, you know, you know, practice and practice and practice, correct? And then that's, compl- well, I guess it's kind of the same thing with acting, but not really the same. Like, do you feel like it was two different types, two different sides of your brain that you were using for that stuff? Um, I guess in a way, um, but you know, it started to really kind of make sense. I was, I was listening to uh, an interview with, uh, Dwayne Johnson Mm -hmm. and he was saying that, um, the whole aspect of being an athlete was so helpful, uh, when he got into the entertainment business because, um, it it taught work ethic and time management Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and all that. So, and you know, he said as, as a performer, he said it really helped him prioritize his schedule and, and, you know, be, uh, always be the best he could be. Mm. Uh, you know, like one of his favorite things is he always says, you know, um, he'll outwork anybody. <laughs> and, um, and I thought, you know, that's, that's an interesting, interesting sentiment from a former athlete. And I, I thought I, when I played hockey, I, um, I kind of held myself to a similar standard in that, um, I wasn't as big as a lot of guys yeah. uh, that were playing. And so I had to make up for it in other places, which was, you know, work ethic and tenacity and, mm. and all that. So I felt that that's helped. Um, I, I think it's helped in acting. Yeah, I get that. I, I get that. That's cool. It's an interesting way of looking at it, especially like, you know, forming some sort of schedule and keeping yourself on some kind of routine because our business is very easy to sort of get lost in the sea of waiting and get lost in, uh, you know, the fact that you're not punching in. It isn't a nine to five for our business. So, um, you know, having a good regiment is important. Um, and a lot of the actors that I've talked to on the show talk about like, you know, mental regiment, like mental health and mental stability and physical health. And then as an actor, you're being judged on your physique all the time. So you have to stay in shape. So I guess there's a lot of crossover there with that stuff, right? Sure. Um, I mean, especially like I, I tend to play more physical roles. Um, so it's it's definitely uh, a big part of it to stay, you know, physically in tune. Um, you know, like I, I do a lot of I do a lot of my own stunts, and so in that sense, it's like I gotta stay, you know, healthy. Yeah. Uh, Cause it's, you know, as you know, it's very difficult. I mean, it's very easy to get injured. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, doing, doing some, doing some stunts. Well, I mean, I would assume that it was even easier to get injured putting ice skates on and <laughs> slamming into oh. guys on the ice. Well, that is, that is a fact. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's funny. I didn't, um, I didn't have many injuries from, um, other players all of my injuries were actually muscle injuries yeah so yeah a lot of times it was during competition i would i would i tore my groin three times and uh it was the same same groin it was uh my right side and it just kept giving out and and i ended up uh you know hanging them up because of that um but yeah it's uh yeah, I mean, professional sports really beats the shit out of you, really. Like, it's like it, there hits this point. Any sort of uh, athlete that I've talked to, they know that they have a lifespan because you're pushing your 
you know, your your muscles, you're, you're pushing your joints, you're pushing everything to the to the limits consistently in order to be competitive and to stay competitive. Um, it always just seems like, phew. like I just talked to this guy the other day. I rented a car from a dude <laughs> who, this is sort of like a side story, but I rented a car for this gig and uh, got in the vehicle, turned on the AC and was on the road and it smelled like cigarettes. And I'm like, you're not supposed to smoke in these vehicles, whatever. So I went back, returned the, the ride to this guy. And I said to him, um, dude, just, just to let you know, the car like reeked of cigarettes. I'm, I'm not looking for anything. I'm just letting you know that it was pretty intense. And he goes, oh, really? I can't smell. And I go, oh, yeah? And he goes, yeah, yeah. I've had my, my nose broken so much that uh, I can't smell anymore. And I went, well, you should probably stop breaking your nose. Like, how are you breaking your nose, man? <laughs> and he goes, uh, oh, I was training. Uh, when I was in high school, I was training to be in the UFC. And he went through the process of, of just explaining how, as like a as a seventeen year old, the 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 constant brutal sort of uh, impacts that he was making on his joints and on his body that he was like, I got to like twenty two, and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. My <laughs> my body is acting like I'm a forty five year old, and I go, Yeah, I get it. <laughs> oh, it's, it's so true. Um, and I I broke my nose th- three times. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I can't smell very well out of it. It's um, especially, I mean, my right nostril, I only have like 10% airflow Wow. Um, on a good day. Wow. Um, wow. So I, I can definitely uh, relate to that. And, um, you know, hockey, yeah, fighting is definitely a part of it, but it's not like in the UFC where every time, you know, every time you go in the ring, you're getting your face punched. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's... That's a brutal sport. It is. It's pretty intense, man. Um, and I've I've always loved hockey because of how it just seems like it's such a da- <laughs> it seems like it's such a dangerous sport to watch. I mean, you're talking to a guy that went ice skating for the first time in his life, fell on the ice, and cracked his skull open. So <laughs> the idea that you're able to put ice skates on in general and move around on the ice to me is like okay, that seems really fucking dangerous. <laughs> oh no, that happened to you? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. Way. Yeah, yeah, I ended up with a hematoma and I was in intensive care and I just put the skates on for the first time and pushed off and slipped back and cracked my skull, man. It was years ago. Um, so yeah. <laughs> so the idea of putting skates on and then, you know, like running at other big dudes that are like fully willing to check you into the boards and and uh, you know, get into physical altercations. I'm like, okay, so this is like fucking rollerball shit <laughs> at this point, <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, no, it, it's pretty wild. I mean, and you like a lot of people forget. It's like, you know, on skates, you can skate way faster than you can run. Yeah. So like, <laughs> you got these big guys that are just flying on skates, and uh, yeah, they're looking to hit you as hard as humanly possible. And uh, yeah, it's you know that's another thing. Everyone thinks that you know, to get a concussion, you have to be hit in the head. Mm-hmm. It's actually not the case. There's lots of times you hit a body to body contact and the actual impact from a body track at full speed in hockey, uh, the actual impact of it will actually give you a concussion. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I had a, I had a concussion just from falling. Like it, yeah. people don't realize that I, I guess technically what it is is it's your brain. It's essentially your brain getting bruised because it's slamming around in your skull, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty nuts. Yeah, when I fell, I ended up falling. Not only did I get concussions, but it also 
I forget, I'm probably not the best person to describe this because I don't know enough about it, but what, the way it was described to me, I had vertigo because in your ears, there are like these little crystals that are on the hair follicles within your ears that help, um, you know, set your balance. And when I fell, those things got knocked around. And so I spent months of doing exercises where I would like hang upside down and try to get uh, those crystals to fall back into place is the way it was described wow. to me. So it was pretty, dude, just from falling my height onto the fucking ice, it was concussion and, uh, and, uh, vertigo. <laughs> no way. Pretty yeah, nuts. that's, that's vertigo is it's pretty brutal. It, it hangs around for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, luckily I recovered. It took me about five months to recover from it, but did you get, have you gotten concussions? I have. Yeah. Pretty intense, right? The, and did, what, did you have any strange side effects from them? You know, actually, not really. Um, I've actually had a few. Uh, I've I've had some with hockey. I had some. I don't know. I think I was just uh, trying to see how much damage I could do to myself because I I played football, I played hockey, and I boxed, and so I was like, I don't know how much more head trauma you can get by doing those three sports. <laughs> but I, I was a running back in football. Wow, and then. I was a goalie in hockey, and then um, I did. Uh, I competed a bit in Muay Thai kickboxing. Jeez, man, intense. And, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, and I've had concussions in all three. I got concussions in football. I got um, in hockey. You know, it's funny as a goalie, um, they're like mini concussions. Um, I never got one from getting run. Like. No guy ever came through the crease and really hit me. Yeah. Uh, all the concussions I had were these mini concussions where guys would, you know, shoot the puck and it would hit you just right in your helmet. And then all of a sudden, you know, your, your eyes get all light sensitive and your ears ring. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I, I played before any of the um, concussion protocols. So, you know, you go to the bench after you, you know, you get your bell rung by a puck and, uh, you know, the, you tell the coach, oh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing spots, you know, and he's like, all right, well take a drink of water and get back out there. You yeah. know, it's, you know, that's just, it's just how it was, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy. And then fighting it's fighting is fighting. I mean, it's, um, you know, they don't stop it until you get knocked down. So it's. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realize, um, what concussions are and what concussions do like, uh, the side effects for my concussion were very strange. Like I lost the inability, uh, to filter out background noise for quite some time. So like I couldn't be in a space without hearing everything. Um, and it was this strange side effect that you, you take for granted all of the stuff that your brain is automatically doing for you behind the scenes. Um, that if you get a head injury, you start, you lose those abilities and suddenly the world becomes almost unbearable because you're just like, fuck, I, I'm trying to talk to this person in a restaurant and I hear like the, the, the chef in the kitchen, I hear every, uh, fork hit in a plate all at the same time. It was pretty intense, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I had, I had a roommate when I was playing pro, um, he, uh, he had a really bad concussion. He got hit guy hit him high with an elbow right to the temple Ugh. um at full speed 
Ugh. and he was right right up against the glass, and um, he missed a year, and then he came back the next season, but um, he was like a different person. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, like he uh, he had no filter. It's like whatever came to his mind, he would just say. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he would always feel bad about it because he, you know, he didn't mean. It was like those those first thoughts that you have that usually get filtered out. Like they would just come out. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I had him, and then I had another friend. Um, she uh, she was another athlete that I used to train with, and she got in a bad car accident. Yeah, and um, same thing. She would say whatever came to her mind, and you could tell she would get really embarrassed sometimes because like things that would come out of her mouth. It's like, she did not mean anyone to hear that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's so interesting. Like you said, it's like you, you take for granted a lot of things that your brain does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, no, it, like I felt that way too. And when I was going through the process, obviously being a filmmaker, I was incredibly fascinated by all of it. And I was incredibly fascinated by like, um, the sensory, like when you lose the ability to sort of filter those things out, how they were affecting me emotionally, how they were affecting me, um, you know, spiritually. And so there hit this point with me where I was just examining it. I felt like I was going on like some weird scientific safari through like mental craziness. Um, and, uh, I was just <laughs> taking notes of all of it to the point where like being a horror film director and being a sci-fi guy, uh, I mean, this is essentially where 12 KM came from was from that head injury. Um, I got to go through this process and be like, Oh, this is fucking fascinating. So now when I'm in like a sound mix or if I'm in a space where I'm trying to create environmental audio, I know the effects that, uh, specific mixes, let's say, let's call them mixes that were happening to me naturally, uh, did on me emotionally. So I kind of know what they'll do to an audience emotionally, which is interesting. So, uh, I ended up recovering fully from the fucking thing. So, then, so afterwards, I'm like, yeah, it was exciting. It was like a really great adventure <laughs> for me to go through and learn all this stuff. I'm sure if I hadn't recovered, I would be saying it differently. But um, sure. I was very fucking lucky. Very fucking lucky, dude. So yeah, yeah, because my my friends that I, I just said they they've never fully recovered. Yeah, like they still they still have those uh, those motor issues where it's like they don't have they have no filter. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. It's crazy shit, man. And so anytime I see football players smashing into each other, or if I see hockey players smashing into each other, or even like, uh, you know, like NASCAR drivers or Formula One drivers, and, and recently because of, you know, the last Top Gun movie, which I was so pumped about, I started watching all these videos on jet pilots dealing with G-Force and everything else. And it's just like, I know just from falling, like I'm about six feet. So I fell six feet and I fucked everything up. So when I see people do this stuff, I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> it's crazy, dude. Yeah, it, I, I loved that new Top Gun. I thought it was phenomenal. Wasn't it? It was the shit. I fucking, it was so good. Yeah, man. I Just like harken back on the movies that I loved as a kid. And then there was this just pure sense of excitement about going to the theater to watch an action movie again and to watch... Uh, something that just 
commanded attention. And I was, I was just excited about it. Did you see it in the theater? I did. Yeah. 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 It's crazy that Tom Cruise still does all that shit. Oh, it's insane. He's, he's, uh, he's a maniac. <laughs> he kind um, of is. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, the stunts he does. I mean, I can't think of another word to describe it more. I mean, hanging on the outside of a plane, taking off and then climbing out the outside of that huge Dubai building. Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, I'm sure that the bond companies just love him. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah of course, man. It, it's like, it's only him and Jackie Chan, you know, is the, the, the two guys that do that kind of insanity. And uh, it's, you know, I, I guess it works. It blows my mind. I don't understand how that formula still works because it doesn't really work anywhere else. Like we don't really have the Bruce Willis's. We don't really have, you know, those big action stars like the Arnold Swartz, I guess kind of with the rock. Um, but with Tom Cruise, I mean, he's he's an older gentleman who is still like his name is still making millions and millions and millions of dollars. It's so weird that it still exists and it still works. And I'm happy it does. You know, it still feels yeah. like old Hollywood, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I mean, obviously, like we, we still have legends like Clint Eastwood that are still around. But I, I feel like as far as the last like movie star in the sense of what we remember movie stars to be. I feel like it is Tom Cruise. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. Um, you know, his, his name, you know, worldwide is enough to sell a multi-million dollar movie, which is nuts. It's nuts. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. that it's. It, I mean, and it's just essentially like Tom Cruise. He's the selling point. He's the selling point for all the mission impossible movies. You know, and, it, and then on top of it, it's like Tom Cruise is going to do some crazy ass shit. He's going to fucking, he's going to learn to fly jets and he's going to fly jets, you know? And it's like, that's yeah. why I went to see it. It was crazy, man. Yeah. And I mean, I, I respect him so much. I mean, it's like, you see what he does um, in all of his films. I mean, his work ethic, and I've got a few friends that have worked on productions with him and they said like his work ethic is just second to none. Like he's crazy. just, you know, he, um. You know, but the thing is, he's, he's, they say he's tough, but he's as tough to you as he is to himself. Like he expects the highest of himself. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I guess that's kind of, that's kind of the guys you want to be around, you know, guys that bring everybody up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You lead by example, you know, and he definitely does. I feel that way, you know, uh, like the, and especially when you're working on such a large production like that, it's so easy uh, for the production to be, I don't want to say lethargic, but when you start working on larger union shows, if you don't set the tone, it's very simple for those shows to sort of run all over you, especially if you're a filmmaker and, uh, they end up becoming about the, the system and the rules and the checking things off. And then you're working with like, you know, second unit directors or stunt coordinators that are like, this is how we do things. And it really takes I don't want to say an ego, but it really takes a personality to sort of break through all that stuff and go, no, here's the vision. And I know you guys have done this a hundred different times that way, but this is my new way. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Tom Cruise obviously has the years and years of of movie experience and, and notoriety from all the films he's done, but he also still has like that pretty intense worth ethic. And we've heard it with the tapes from him on sets, being upset and all that stuff, but I get why he was. I really do. Mm. it's crazy stuff um, man yeah it is it's really crazy um you know if you look at his career too it's like 
um, you know, Cruz is such an interesting career. It's like he's dabbled in everything. It's like, yeah. I mean, from, uh, you know, from, I love Tropic Thunder. I think he's so unbelievably funny in it. <laughs> yeah, um, he is. You know, from that to, you know, he's done rom-coms, he's done drama, he's done horror with, you know, Interview with the Vampire. Um, you know, he's literally done everything. Yeah. Uh, and I think he does everything well. Yeah. yeah. His, and I was really, um, his performance in this newest Top Gun I thought was phenomenal. I, I just, you know, you really feel for him. And yeah. I, I think his grounded performance in that I think was very heartfelt. Yeah. 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 And they, they ran the limits of being cheesy, you know, so you were like, if they had gone too far in a direction, it would have been a little bit cheesy, a little bit hokey. And they kept it grounded in the reality of everything. And I thought it was interesting that they played with sort of the middle-aged uh, issues that he would have as a character. And they didn't try to like make him into the young character that he was, the young maverick that he was before. Um, so, and the relationship issues that he was having, all that stuff was really fun. I thought for the movie. Mm. Uh, yeah, man. So when you decided that you wanted to get into acting, were there actors that you were looking up to? Were there people that uh, you wanted to saw, follow the same sort of path? Yeah. Yeah. There's a few actors that I, I just, I've always loved since I was a kid. Um, Johnny Depp was one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved his, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, like I, I look at him, uh, you know, I, I love the fact that he's so imaginative and he takes on, he can literally become anything. Mm -hmm. uh, I always liked him. I always liked Vigo Mortensen. Oh, he's amazing. Uh, he's amazing. Oh, Vigo's incredible. Yeah. Uh, he's another one. He can play any genre, any kind of character. I mean, from, you know, from Green Book to Indian Runner to yeah. Lord of the Rings. I mean, yeah. Um, anything. And then, Another one like that was uh, Gary Oldman. Yep. I always loved Gary Oldman. Yeah. Um, and um, I grew up in a lot of older, you know, older classics. And I, I always, I felt it was kind of like that in the same vein. I always liked, um, um, oh gosh, um, he's, uh, he's come to me from. Um, what movies? From The Godfather. Uh, but Al Pacino, oh, Brando, Brando, yes, Brando. I, I mean, felt like Brando was a kind of a new age kind of character actor where he would, he would like he was the you know the leading man type, the strong leading man type, but he was getting into more of these, you know, characters, which yeah. um, you didn't see a whole lot of back then. It was like if you were a, a classic leading man, that's what you did. Um, but he was kind of breaking that mold. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like on the waterfront really changed the way people think about acting in general. And he really was one of the forerunners for the method and all that. And it was kind of changing the, that old style, which was the Cary Grant sort of like deliver your lines. And I'm this character all the time. And I'm Cary Grant who, you know, we still have those folks. We were, I was just talking to a friend the other day about uh, Tom Hanks and how they were saying like Tom Hanks, feels like an old Cary Grant, old classic Hollywood actor where anytime you see him on screen, you go, that's Tom Hanks. But when uh, you look at the method stuff and uh, you know, on the waterfront and what he was doing and you sort of compare that to like 
Tom Hardy of today and all that. It, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to see how quickly and how drastically the method changed acting, which was interesting. Yeah. And it's, he's another one I really like, um, Tom Hardy. Um, yeah. You know, Tom Hardy, I feel is, is interesting in a similar way to Vigo, um, in that both of them are very, you know, classic, you know, they have that, that kind of classic masculine leading man quality, but they also have this innate, uh, vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, which I felt Brando did as well. And it's, um, you know, I watch Hardy and it's like Hardy can really key into that, like, especially the Revenant. Um, yeah. You watch the Revenant. I mean, yeah, he was portrayed as the bad guy, but he had this quality about him that it's like this guy was just trying to just survive. Yeah. He was very desperate. He had this desperation, which, yeah. which, and, which was very identifiable. Yeah. And so like, I just remember watching and I thought, wow, you know, yeah, he's the bad guy, but you kind of, you kind of feel for him, um, which is, which is very interesting. He does that often. Um, yeah, I've, I've always liked that about him. Um, you know, and even like with, uh, you know, Gary Oldman, mm-hmm. uh, Bonnie Depp, mm-hmm. uh, Vigo, they all kind of have this, vulnerability to them as well like captain jack sparrow Mm -hmm. um i would he's definitely an anti-hero um (laughs) yes you know but he's got this lovability you know you just you love the character but if you look at his actions he's not a good guy no not at all yeah he's out for Uh, himself in that movie yeah yeah i mean i think that's the trick right there's a lot of different thoughts on what makes a successful actor like male character actor specifically i forget where i heard this and i'm probably gonna fuck it up but someone was saying that great masculine actors great masculine characters require femininity and there's a sense of of um i don't want to say it's not weakness isn't the right term it's there's a sense of vulnerability there it is a sense of vulnerability that some of our favorite action heroes have and if you look back on the surface and you watch a movie like die hard right and it's like john mcclain throwing out those one-liners shooting a guy under a table tossing you know a bomb down an elevator shaft all that stuff on the surface value is like this movie's very macho and he's a macho kind of guy um but the most fascinating scenes in that movie to me are like when he's in the bathroom and he's pulling glass out of his foot and he's trying to, you know, share emotions with a stranger over walkie-talkie. And not just a stranger, but another man from that time period into, into practically be crying to another man in a, in a film like that at that time period was, was new and different and strange. And, um, and it added that contrast to the wisecracking, you know, asshole that was running around and shooting people, you know? I a hundred percent agree. And it's like, I I think that's something that a lot of people overlook and it's, you know, I even forgot about that until you just brought it up, but it's like, you know, those two characters and, you know, the police officer saying back to him, you know, you take care of yourself, John, you know, and it's like, um, you know how they were checking in on each other. It's like, yeah, there was a, a real bond and, you know, 
for me, it felt like a, you know, like a teammate, you know, yeah. like a brotherhood thing. And, but there was a real heartfelt connection there. They were really looking out for each other. Um, yeah. You know, and it, it's, you know, the, the thing about Die Hard that I think is just such a great franchise is it's really one of the first action movies that I remember where the hero for one was so human Mm -hmm. and two, he was so comedic. (laughs) Yeah, he was. Yeah. You know, it was like, that's the one thing about uh, Bruce Willis was he just had such a great sense of situational comedy. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, he, he came from that comedy world. Like, it, it's yeah. it was fascinating to see that he was cast from Moonlighting, which was sort of like a romantic comedy, snarky little television show with him and Sybil Shepard. Sure. And then he was, you know, strangely cast in this situation, and it worked. It was kind of a gamble. Um, sure. But, yeah, because of that contrast. I think that contrast really makes that movie what it is, you know? Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So when you, so you went and you did uh, film or film studies and theater studies in school. So then you get out of school. How do you get into acting? Do you take uh, acting classes outside? Uh, do you just like, how did you get in? Yeah, I, um, I started studying outside. Um, I found, uh, I, I went to a bunch of different coaches in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found one that now I've been with for, seven years now um and he's just been great he comes from the theater world he's uh he was a professional theater actor in russia and then oh nice came to the united states and he um he worked with some of the studios and and he uh he did a lot of interesting stuff and uh yeah just uh he comes from the the chekhov method Mm -hmm. and um so it was very interesting because a lot of schools don't teach Chekhov. Um, you know, I, I think it's probably because there's just not a lot of Russian teachers that teach it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I found him, I was really excited because I didn't know that that methodology. And then to have learned it over the past seven years, it's been it's been very interesting. Can you explain that methodology, you know, in the simplest way possible to our listeners? Sure. Um so Chekhov was from the um, the Stanislavski um, mm-hmm. school of thought, and um, so for him, there's a lot of. Uh, for me, it's I guess the way I would describe it. A lot of it is visual. Like if you're if you're a very visual person, like you have a very vivid imagination. Um, there's a lot of um, you know visuals, like visualization. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the steps. It's like you visualize what's happening in your brain, um, in the scene. And then you start adding atmosphere. You start adding colors. You start adding all these different descriptive words that go with your imagery. And it's interesting how you start incorporating all these things. It's like, and then adjectives, it's how are they moving? How Mm -hmm. are they saying? And so you start adding colors to that and atmosphere and intense visuals you start getting a really vivid picture in your mind of not only the character but what is actually happening and Mm -hmm. what you're doing to someone else 
So I, I think if you're one of those people that has a very visual brain, um, it's a very effective method. Now, is, uh, all, is all this visualization that you're doing, is this in prep for you or is yeah. this? Yeah. 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 In prep. Yeah. That's what I thought. Okay. That's interesting. So then you, you do your homework, right? You're reading through a script. You're sort of visualizing this stuff. You're, you're trying to feel the textures from these things. Is that, do you, do you pull that into when you actually start performing in the scene or do you just let all that go and then just naturally try to play it out? Um, well, no, I, I definitely, I keep, um, I keep some of the, some of the imagery with me and then especially the adjective, like if I'm, um, you know, whatever I'm trying to do to that other character in the scene, it's like, um, you know, you pick, you pick your adjective. If you're, you're trying to, you know, intimidate, mm-hmm. let's just say, mm-hmm. uh, then you, you can find all of the other words that also are synonymous with you know, intimidate and you find the one that really kind of moves you. Mm-hmm. And then you just, it's like you're channeling that feeling into them and it kind of couples with the imagination Yeah, and it, it, it really does work. So it's like, if you go in there with your clear intention of what you're going to do to the other characters in the scene it, um, with your visualization, it really helps you create a very real atmosphere. It is time to take a break from the interview, and I want to move into our other segment, which I guess you could call our ad reads, but they've sort of developed. I mean, let me be transparent with you guys. So when I um, either offer up ad reads to uh, companies or if I sell spots, my sales pitch to them is, hey, I'll give you guys a 30-second ad read. Um, and I'm <laughs> such a bad business person because I essentially throw that out the window because what happens is that instead of them sending me a script, they're usually like, hey, uh, why don't you just talk about your experiences with the equipment? Why don't you just talk about your experiences uh, with the gear or if you've drank the beer before? And the truth is, is that I use this stuff all the time. So when I start to talk about this equipment and I start to talk about our sponsors, there are a lot of stories that come with it. Um, and then I get lost. <laughs> so this segment sort of blows up into becoming a, a bit of a different uh, learning segment on each of the episodes. And I've been getting notes from you guys on Instagram on how much you guys enjoy the ad reads because they're not necessarily ad reads. Um, so let me pretend like there's a structure to them and then maybe let you guys in on what's going on when I use this stuff and uh, give you some up-to-date information. So First up, friends over at Puget Systems. PugetSystems.com is the place to go if you're gonna if you're gonna build and buy a brand new edit system. Yes, you don't have to deal with Apple. You can build yourself a PC. Yes, you can have a company make you a PC that has t- customer service tech support, uh, so you don't have to build your own PC. Uh, and Puget Systems builds the best out there. I've been using and editing Puget Systems for over eight years now. 
Um, and I've got two here at the house. I love these guys. I'm actually looking into upgrading and, and going to a brand new system with these guys. Uh, so I'm excited um, to have them as a continued sponsor. And here's some like fun insider stuff. Um, Eric and uh, Chris from Puget Systems were in town um, this week or last week, whenever this episode comes out. Um, and um, they were hanging out with the dudes from Corridor. So if you guys don't know, those Corridor's that uh, YouTube channel where it's the uh, visual effects artist uh, commenting on visual effects or bad visual effects, right? Um, so though Eric was in town, the Puget guys were in town, and whenever, <laughs> whenever they're around, they're always writing to be going, uh, are you here? Can we go on a bar safari? Can we go out? And I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> I love these guys. I love hanging out with them. And I got to hang out with the corridor dudes as well. Um, I had a, I had a blast with them. We ended up going down to a brewery down in the arts district here in Los Angeles. Um, and we all got nerdy about uh, computers and we all got nerdy about uh, filmmaking and we all got nerdy about beer. Um, it was a fucking really great hangout, actually. Um, and if dudes like that are also using Puget Systems and they're running all their VFX stuff on Puget Systems, and I think they've outfitted most of their studio with it, those guys have a bunch of employees over there. They're doing really well. Um, then you might want to look into it, too. Uh, there's a reason why we're all using this stuff. It, it's. I feel like the guy that is telling his friends about a punk rock album that they need to hear this is a punk rock album that will be huge 20 years from now people will be talking about how punk rock like if you didn't listen if you don't have a puget systems that you weren't really in the fucking game you know what i mean every time i talk to folks with it about it it, it always feels that way and whenever i talk to listeners of the show that got their hands on a puget um they're always just they feel like they're in the club in the group um, these guys kill, man. These guys crush, and they do such a good job with it. And they're they're not manufacturing product, so they're not trying to pedal off like a warehouse full of shit that they have. These guys put together the best hardware. They benchmark test everything, um, and they build the best PCs for what it is that you need. So if you're a post production studio, if you're a podcast studio that's doing really well, and you uh, have a need for a bunch of edit computers, maybe some VFX computers. Um, or maybe you guys are just doing gaming stuff, maybe doing a Twitch and you need a computer that can run not only the gr a great game, but also be doing the screen cap at the same time. Um, Puget Systems is the place to go. It's awesome, man. I love these guys. I love them so much. Like I said, I go out drinking with them every time we're in town. We always have a great time. Where'd we end up going? We went, so we went, uh, I was downtown at the brewery. By the way, for those of you that live in Los Angeles, if you ever park in the fucking parking lot that's right next to the Arts District Brewery, and there's a sign on it that says $4 to park there. You park your car, you go over to the little machine to pay, and it turns out it's not $4. Turns out it's like $20 to park there. So I booked, what was it, four hours or whatever the hell? We lost a little bit of track of time, and so I ended up back in the parking lot about 15 minutes later than I was supposed to be. And they left me a ticket for $68, $68. So it cost me $88 to park in that parking lot next to the fucking Arts District Brewery. So this is a warning out there for anybody that lives in Los Angeles. Fuck that parking lot and fuck those guys. Because it was a, it was a, I felt 
Whoa, I felt so ripped off that night. It was fucking insane. Anyway, um, so then where did we go? We went from the Arts District to uh, Koreatown, which is always an adventure. Um, and we ended up uh, going to, I took the guys uh, to a speakeasy. So it's like an 80s themed speakeasy that has like walls of old uh, televisions from that time period. They have a whole wall built out of cassette tapes, which is super cool. It's all tiled out of cassette tapes. Um, and they fucking had a killer live band that was playing everything live from like Flock of Seagulls to like Michael Jackson, completely talented musicians. Um, and uh, we had a killer night. So love the guys from Puget Systems. If you want to be part of the Puget Systems family, um, head on over to PugetSystems.com check them out go through their stuff if you're just someone that's trying to build a pc maybe you're trying to build a bunch of pcs for your office these guys also consult so there's all sorts of options for you there um, i love these guys can't say enough about them and uh speaking of beers and speaking of uh drinking beers my next ad read is for everybody that is of of legal age like you need to be of legal age to drink I don't know where you live, but mostly in the United States is 21 years old. Um, I know there's a lot of younger film students out there that are uh, jumping at the bit to do it. Drink responsibly. Um, and I always piss off Gina. I love blowing her shit up when I say this. I always piss her off. Uh, my goal, and I, I don't want to sound pretentious, but this is the truth. When I go out to bars, if I go out to have beers, it's a social thing for me. First and foremost, I mean, come on, guys, I'm 44 years old. I'm not going out to get hammered. It's not like I've had a tough week and I'm like, I just got to go out and get drunk. That was shit that I did when I was a kid. I'm now at the point where I like to use it as a social experiment. It's a, it's like food, right? It's going out to have food. It's like making food. It's the same kind of deal where like you get to sit down, you get to experience something new with the person that you're trying to connect with. Maybe you're trying to learn more about. Maybe you're trying to uh, convince this person to work on your movie. Maybe you're trying to convince this person to be in your film. Um, it's if both people drink, if you guys are into beer and into booze, it's always a fun thing to do if you do it responsibly. And one of the things that I like to do now that I'm older is I like to drink great beer. There's no reason to go out and do like tons of Miller High Lifes at this point, right? I did that when I was a kid. I used to drink Miller High Life all the time. And then the next morning, I wake up with a terrible hangover. And it feels like I just chewed my way through two tin cans. It's like, why do I do that? I don't do that anymore. I like to go out and experience the insane world that is microbrews right now. Microbrews are all over the place. I think the stat was, hold on, let me look at my notes here, that there was over 9,000. What was it? Did you know that uh, as of this year, there are 9,100 craft breweries in the United States? How fucking cool is that? And there's something so empowering about hearing that because most other industries are just decimated by these giant corporations that come in and buy everything out. These are breweries that are owned by families. These are breweries that are owned by brewmasters. Um, and one of my favorites is our sponsor in the show. I'm so excited to be... Uh, working with Bear Republic. Now, do you guys know who Bear Republic is? If not, Bear Republic was founded in 1995. Uh, the original brewery is located just off the downtown square in Heldsburg, California, and is where they created and sometimes stumbled upon some of their favorite beer recipes. 
uh, Ricardo's Red Rocket Ale. I'm sure you guys have heard of that. Most people have heard of Racer 5 IPA. That's where I got started with these guys. I started to drink Racer 5 years ago. Bear Republic likes to leave their mark with their beers, but they want to minimize their marks in the environment. So if you go to the website, you can read about their sustainability efforts. That's super cool for a lot of people. Personally, for me, it's about two things. Flavor. Now, flavor is important because there are all sorts of options out there, right? If uh, you're an IPA lover, hops are in. Hops have been in for quite some time. I was a big IPA guy back on the East Coast. I was drinking hops like crazy. I don't know if it's because of the weather difference, because it's generally warmer here, but I find myself doing a lot more lagers. I find myself doing a lot more Pilsners. I find myself doing a lot more like, um, like European ales, like Czechs, um, German ales. Um, but you know, IPAs are still fucking great. They're just really heavy to me right now. I don't know what it is. I just had a conversation with, was it Lance that I talked to about this? Um, but, uh, what I like about racer, uh, what I like about bear Republic rather is that they have all sorts of different great options right now. They just sent me a stack. I'm excited to try out their nor Cal India pale ale and they have their tarot card series i have uh the sun i'm looking at all the graphics on these are fucking rad it's the other thing i like about microbrews is how much attention to detail they spend and the artists they hire to do their canned graphics work and i'm not too proud to say that oftentimes i will just buy a beer based upon the graphics that are on the outside of it maybe that's the comic book kid in me um but it's fun if you do it responsibly right you go out you have a couple beers. You guys have heard me talk about bar safaris on the show. One of the big rules of the bar safari is that every place you go, you either get one beer or you get one thing of food. Um, and that way you can hit more bars. That way the experience sort of lasts longer. That way you're taking your time with the beer that you're drinking. You're actually enjoying the flavor profile. You're enjoying the complexities. All that hard work that those brewmasters have put into those cans of beer. Um, that's always been the rule when we do bar safaris, and it keeps you from getting hammered too quick. Now, you may get drunk over a period of time, but if you're like five hours deep, then whatever, man. That's the side effect of it. You're not setting out to get trashed. So drink responsibly, and in that responsibility, you're able to function. You're able to make great connections. You're able to talk to folks, and I'm not saying that the beer does it. I'm just saying that being able to sit at a bar, being able to crack open a beer is one of those communal experiences, right? Same thing with food. Maybe you're going to go on a burger safari. Same thing with food. So drink responsibly. And I'm a huge fan of Bear Republic. And I'm a big fan of all their microbrews right now. And here's what's exciting. For those of you that are legal drinking age, you can actually buy their beer online. I think this is a great side effect of COVID. One of the one of the few great side effects of COVID is that uh, you can actually buy beer online now. I know that these guys are selling beer here in California and a few other states, but if you go to bearrepublic.com, you can select all of their crazy, awesome, small batches of beers. And if they don't, can, if they can't ship it to you to your state. They will list all the places in your state where you can get it, whether it's stores, whether it's Drizzly, whatever it is. These guys will keep you up to date. Their website is fucking awesome. Go to bearrepublic.com and we have a we have a promo code. So we have a discount promo code that is process15. That's 
process 15 and this will get all of our listeners 15% off the entire online store catalog both beer and merch and by the way I've been wearing if you guys have noticed I've been wearing their uh, trucker hat I fucking love their logos and shit so uh, I love Bear Republic I'm excited you're gonna hear a lot more from them as we continue on this journey um, and uh, yeah support them man head on over to their Instagram page at Bear Republic and see what's up and just give them a note say hey I appreciate you guys supporting Mike on in love with the process all right uh other sponsor that we're very excited about we just did a bunch of episodes last week with victor vice president over there at fuji film um so fuji film is sponsoring the show fuji film is making these amazing new cameras gina and i got into them specifically because we needed to find a medium format still camera that was really susceptible to low lighting one of the issues that Gina was having as she did many of her recent shoots, like she did stills for the boys shoot for Entertainment Weekly, uh, she did the video stuff for Robert Pattinson, GQ. Um, some of you photographers out there know what's up. The new world right now is video is king. So all of these magazines, all these publications are no longer printing because honestly, let's be real, they're not getting the ad revenue that they used to have. So everything that they're doing is pretty much moving online and pretty much moving to social media. That's really the case. Look at Entertainment Weekly and how much of their stuff is on Instagram right now. So they're smartening up. They've unfortunately laid off entire departments uh, and not just specific magazines, but most magazines have laid off entire departments or people that work in the still campaign stuff and the budgets are shifting to video, but they still need photos. So it's always this weird balancing game of who gets uh, the most money. Is it video or is it photo for budget? And then who is in charge on the set? Is it the, is it the director or is it the photographer? This has been an age-old battle for years. Stuff I used to do back in Boston where I would get hired to shoot product stuff for carpet commercial while they're shooting the commercial at the same time. Now... If you're a photographer and you've ever worked with large format stuff, right? If you ever worked with cameras and clients that potentially going to use your stuff on billboards, the requests are always the same. We want low grain, right? We want um, very uh, well-lit images, sharp images, um, but you have to shoot them at the same time that they're doing the video stuff. And the uneducated clients, most of the time, are like, you can just use the same lighting, right? Well, that's not the case. Especially if your photographer is like, all right, I need to shoot this at at least uh, 400 ISO. And I've got a lens that's got a low stop of a 3.5, maybe even a 4. And because of the focus on that lens, I want to be rocking myself close to an 8, right? And then as far as shutter speed's concerned, uh, now I'm in the point where I need to capture the action. So it's got to be at least 125 shutter. If you're a gaffer, if you're a lighting assistant, you're pulling your fucking hair out because you know at that point you're throwing out all sorts of constant lighting units. Like they won't even fucking register at that exposure, right? So you can't use uh, your LED units. Maybe you can use the 1.2 HMI that's in the window. It's incredibly surprising how much light is needed for traditional medium format cameras. They have they, they shoot such great stuff, but most of the time you're in the strobe world. 
And then you're dealing with strobes, which is completely different what, than what the video department's doing. And the modifiers are different. So the, the quality of the lighting just looks different. It just looks different. And when you're dealing with the clients at the back end, they're like, we don't understand. We spent thousands and thousands of dollars on all this light for the video stuff. Why can't you capture it with the camera? That was the problem. So we did a bunch of research. Uh, I got to meet Victor. Uh, you, if you guys haven't heard the episode, go listen to the episode with me and Victor Ha. I met him at uh, one of the conventions out here, and he was telling me about Fuji's brand new medium format camera, which I love. And he's like, dude, it's incredibly susceptible to low light. Um, let me give you the tech specs, because I still can't wrap my head around these numbers. How many fucking cameras do we got to remember? So what we got our hands on was the GFX 100S, which is really great. Um, it's powered by Fujifilm's high-performance X processor, four quad-core CPU, which is super awesome. Let me sort of scroll through here. Um, beep, 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 beep. It processes amazing color fidelity, rich shadow detail with enough. Here, here we go. With enough dynamic range to allow for an astonishing push and pull adjustments in post-production. That's massive. Or use our pixel shift multi-shot to create ultra high resolution 400 megapixel stills with remarkable detail. That's fucking cool, man. Um, we love it. Gina just did a shoot that will be coming out soon. She just worked with an artist um, and she ran out and she did sort of a run and gun mode. Uh, she was shooting in like the high dynamic range mode with it, which is pretty cool. You have to be either in two settings. It's kind of like when you're using uh, like a high-end video camera. So like uh, it, you could, I think the high dynamic range, don't quote me on this, but I think the high dynamic range mode kicks in at like 400 ASA or kicks in at like 1200. So it's in that range. If you shoot around there, then you have even more adjustments that you can do in post-production. Um, and while you're shooting it in camera, you'll see it pulling details out of the shadows while also processing the details in the sky, which is pretty awesome, especially if you're doing like run and gun outside stuff. Now, just saying that run and gun outside stuff with a medium format camera, if you're talking about the days of Hasselblad shit, that just doesn't happen. That's what's really great about this Fujifilm medium format rig. Um, Gina has been loving it. Uh, I just, I was over her shoulder the other day and she's like, look how far in I can zoom. <laughs> She's like, look how many megapixels this is. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty insane. Um, so it's a great rig for that. We're very excited about it. Gina will be posting all sorts of images. I'll try to repost them on my Instagram at Mike Petchy. Um, and uh, we'll keep you better informed. And I just talked to Victor. We haven't worked out the details yet, but we're still talking about potentially having a contest in which we give away a camera from Fujifilm. So stay in stay tuned. Keep listening. Keep listening to these ad reads because there may come a point in time where we're giving away one of their camera rigs. We'll figure out the details. I have to talk to them this week, flush it all out, but we're trying to make it work. And those of you who do shoot Fuji, send me the stuff you're shooting. Have you guys messed with this camera? Like, give me some tips. How is the low lighting situation for you? What have you learned? Are there any like quirks that you've tried to figure out? Um, we're still running heavily through beta testing on this. It's just really tough to do while everything else is happening. We have our summer craziness that's going on. Gina's now working with B Miller again. So she's going to be jumping on board, I think with all these camera rigs to do that. Um, but we're in, we're in pre-production on all that stuff. So 
trying to do tests, trying to put things out. I'm in the middle right now of editing a piece that I shot with their other rigs, which, which I'm very excited about. Their sort of cinema rig, which is, by the way, not only a great video camera, but also a really great second shooter when you're out there shooting stills. But I just shot a piece with their, a, with their X-H2S. And I shot this in video, 4K ProRes. And I'm in the process of cutting this on my Puget system. Ah, look how Mike works all the sponsors together in a story. Um, very excited about all that stuff. And cutting that thing, I keep falling back on my favorite sponsor in the show, on the guys that have made my career this year, as far as commercials are concerned, uh, the dudes over at Jambox.io. Um, you guys have heard me talk about it in other episodes. Jambox is the only place I go to find licensed music. So if I'm not working with someone that is composing music for me, I go to Jambox because their selection is by far the best selection I've ever heard on the internet. Jambox has helped me get clients by being able to use their music. Let's just be real. Because most people that are working for corporate clients or commercial clients have shitty music. So if you sign up for Jambox, if you sign up for one of their subscription plans, which are very discounted, really, really fucking affordable, um, you're going to have a leg up. I'm telling you right now. Because clients, the last thing they think about is music. And most of the time you're out there shooting hard to create amazing visuals. And then you slap some bullshit fucking MIDI track underneath it and it ruins everything. If you're someone that's editing, you know you know exactly what I'm talking about. Head on over to jambox.io, jambox.io, Michael. Head over there today and just go through their catalog. It's like surfing through, um, oh my God, Spotify. I mean, they have amazing playlists. You can create your own playlist on there. Um, I have a bunch of playlists up there right now. So if you head on over to jambox.io, you can see my playlists. Um, and you can see the stuff that I love, the stuff that I've used, everything from like insane epic opera tracks that we used for the Robert Pattinson pieces to the recent stuff I did for House of the Dragon and Bows, which was this really cool epic sort of Viking hip hop like trap crossover. Um, and it was so much fun to cut to that. So much fun to cut to that track. I found all this stuff at jambox.io. Head on over there right now. Check out the subscription plans. They have great deals for people that are just doing podcasts. They have another selection for folks that are doing paid work. Um, that's only 19 bucks a month, by the way. Um, or if you're a student, you get all that for $6 a month. And maybe you just don't want any more subscription plans. You can single song license and it's very fucking affordable. Incredibly affordable. Jambox.io will change your work today. Head on over there and check them out. Um, and uh, finally, sponsoring the show is our friends over at Indie Pro. It's been a second since I've done an ad read for Indie Pro. Indie Pro creates amazing battery power solutions for your cameras. So I have a Blackmagic 6K Pro, which I love. But what I hate about those cameras is that they don't give you a charger and they have very small batteries that have to be charged within the camera itself. It sucks. And so what I wanted to do was get myself a um, larger brick, a battery brick that I could put onto my rig that would not only power the uh, Blackmagic camera, but it would also power all the accessories that I had on there as well. 
And uh, I did the research and IndiePro not only makes amazing batteries with long lifespans, easy and fast to charge. Uh, they have V mounts, they have Gold Pro mount, but they also are very lightweight. So when you're building this kit, you don't want that camera kit to be super heavy. It just reminds me of the days when I used to shoot on Betacam when I first started. I remember fucking battery packs back then that were like a belt. I mean, you looked like a Rob Layfield character when you had to put all these batteries on yourself. Straps over, it's like, it's like ammunition straps. It was fucking heavy as hell. These new bricks are very lightweight, which is really cool. Head on over to IndiePro.com right now. Check them out. They have all sorts of different power solutions. I'm going to talk to these guys this week and see if they can give me a custom power solution so I can also power the Fuji rigs when I put them together. We'll see what they can dig up for me. Uh, love those guys as a sponsor. Um, and uh, check them out. There you go. That's the end of my gear story section. Thanks for listening. And let's get back to our interview. Yeah, it's interesting because I got real nerdy about this stuff during uh, during uh, COVID, and I spent a lot of time reading, like uh, directing actors, the Judith Weston's book, and she has a lot of those same techniques that are in there. I think a lot of these different ideas sort of borrow from the same sources, um, and I found that stuff fascinating because as a director, it's also interesting. I do the same level of prep for that. So when I'm sure. pulling when I'm pulling down a script, I'm I'm writing down adjectives, I'm writing down stuff that I will take with me onto set um, to either influence some of your performance or uh, just be there if you if you lose track of it, you know, because I know the hardest thing as an actor is to sort of keep track of where the fuck you are with everything that's happening, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the adjective game is fascinating to me because then I think uh, less experienced directors, myself included, when I started, you sort of go in there and you run the risk of like, uh, you know, trying to teach an actor how to perform, like do it like this. And then they sort of like, you know, are like, give you a line read, which I feel like is the worst, <laughs> it's the worst directing in the world at that point. You know, do you feel that yeah. way? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I know it's a dangerous I, thing to say out loud, I'm, but yeah. I mean, it, I, I guess it all depends. It's like, you know, and, and every actor has a different, you know, some actors like, they love rehearsal. Some mm -hmm. actors don't. Um, some actors like, you know, line readings. It's, it's all interesting. Like I remember hearing stories of, especially old Hollywood, um, you know, stories like Brando, how he would not rehearse. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't, he refused. He refused to do any kind of rehearsing, any kind of line reading, anything. He wanted to come in and, and have it organically unravel. Yeah. Um, in front. And I, I heard other stories. I, you know, I don't know if they're true or not, but I heard he used to put, um, some of the lines on, um, yes, <laughs> all around the room. Yes. It's very true. Yes, it is true. I've heard this. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he used to, and for him, it was like, he'd find the line. And while he'd find the line, he would then like find his like 
you know, what he was going through when he found the line. And <laughs> he made it work somehow. He made it seem real, even though he was just finding a, you know, a card, you know, taped to the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm terrible at memorization. So for me, I get it. (laughs) Totally get it. Uh, But uh, yeah, do you like, and at the end of the day, it's interesting when, when you start talking about all these like different acting techniques and different schools of thought for acting, what you're essentially just trying to do uh, for the filmmaker is get, real feeling moments in the bin. That's it. It's like getting those clips together that uh, feel present and feel real. And it isn't necessarily because the actor is really good at their lines or remember their lines specifically, or that the actor is really good at crying or it's, it's more about the quiet moments. It's more about the moments in between words that are spoken um, where the actor truly believes that they're in that space and that they are that person because as humans, we're so advanced in reading faces. We're so advanced in picking up emotions. Mm-hmm. And so whatever technique that you need or that you use that that will give me that quiet moment while you're listening to another actor perform and, and give me that insert of you physically watching and being attentive. Um, and then not just, you know, Tyler being attentive, but the character that you're playing being attentive, um, it's amazing. And I never really shit on any skill for it. I think if you're using method, I think if you're uh, using, um, you know, memorization, whatever you do to get there, I think it's great as long as it's not disrupting, you know, the cast around you in a negative way. I think it's great. So um, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. So how long... So do you still use that stuff that you learned then every day when you work on set? Yeah. Um, like every Monday I, I work with my acting coach. Um, I do uh, two hours every Monday morning um, with my, I've had the scene partner now, same scene partner now for about three years. Wow. And um, so we, uh, we just pick different material and, and um, we usually pick stuff with him that, we feel scene wise that would be very challenging or, or different. And, um, so he'll give us a different, uh, like sometimes he'll give us an intention or he'll give us an atmosphere that he wants us to experiment with mm-hmm. and then, uh, bring it into the next class. And it's just the three of us. Um, when we go in, it's just myself, my partner and our coach. Wow. So that's really nice is it's just like a, pretty much a, a one-on-one i mean for for that sake uh every week so um wow that's rad dude yeah it's really great and he he gets very into it he's very involved but um he's also very open to letting the what i like is he allows the actors to explore and find their own kind of end to the material because you know some coaches it's like it's like they want to almost mold you into what they believe the scene should look like Mm -hmm. rather than um, he believes he wants you to find what the scene looks like to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he'll give you the information, like he'll give you the intention and he'll give you some of that stuff, but it's, it's your job as the artist to, to find the journey to get there. Um, Which is interesting because those essentially that coach is playing the role of the director 
And then depending yeah. upon the type of director you're working with, you know, there's a lot of directors that will try to mold and push you into something. And then there are the directors that are often considered the actor's director, which allow the actors to find it and, and to go through there. I, it's, it's interesting because myself as a director, I feel like I'm making the transition more into being an actor's director because I'm seeing the results of it. I'm actually seeing better results in the edit. Whereas when I started, I came from a very technical director sort of aspect, which, you know, I compared to like, you know, I, I studied like Ridley Scott or, or Alfred Hitchcock or those guys were, that were incredibly technical prior to it. Um, sure. And I also found that being so technical, I was robbing myself of a lot of fun with the actors. So selfishly, I kind of do it for fun. <laughs> at this point where I'm like, I, I want to have fun with these guys. That's why I cast them. That's why I, we're, we're going to hang out. We're going to find these characters together. Let's have a good time. And I think the technical stuff is important and it's always there. But um, if you're leaning on that too heavily as a director, it just becomes technical. And when you watch the scenes, they may be technically proficient. And there's a lot of this out there. It's like, oh, sweet camera move, very cool dolly move, all that kind of shit. But it's just lacking that emotion or is la lacking a heartbeat it doesn't have heartbeat so you know i don't know it's cool stuff man it's really cool it's all yeah yeah it's uh I, you know and i always find that interesting you know from you know hearing from a, a director um it's it's very interesting because i know just like an actor directors have you know their own process and their own you know their own styles and it's like you mentioned you know ridley scott versus um, like David so I, or Russell or somebody, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and then you have, you know, then you have actor directors like Cassavetes or, or like, um, you know, um, Eastwood, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, that have their own very distinct styles. Um, yeah, it's very interesting and it's, you can see it really come through in each, you know, each, um, each director, some are way more visual than others. Some are more um, like a um, like a Zack Snyder. Yeah, yeah. Um, extremely visual. Yeah. Um, I feel like Eastwood. All of his films are very kind of gritty and very kind of character focused. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I feel like that's also kind of how he was as an actor. Yeah, talk about a crazy education he had. To be a director, I mean, all, look at all this. Oh my God! Look at all the talented directors that he cut his teeth with, from all the spaghetti westerns all the way through. Um, and he's had the training of some of the best visual directors and some of the best character directors out there. It's it's uh it's awe inspiring and almost uh, I'm envious of dudes like Ben Affleck and these guys that uh, end up becoming uh, directors and they've just you know trained by like Michael Bay, trained by Steven Spielberg, you know what I mean? Like all that kind of stuff. It's really interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's so true. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, and Affleck, I mean, Affleck really, I mean, he's done some really great films. Yeah. Um, as a director, he's done a great job. Um, another one who's very interesting is um, Sean Penn. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. He's another very interesting actor, director. Yep. Yeah. He hasn't done. He hasn't done something in a while. I think he was doing a doc in Russia for a while. I got, I don't know what he's doing now, but yeah, I always liked his stuff too. It's it's 
that stuff was interesting to me because then in my head, I'm always like, well, okay, so this person and was, was taught by all these different directors. Let's see how they pull it all together. It's in, like even uh, Krasinski right now who did a quiet place and all that stuff. He has spent time with really great directors. And so it, it's no surprise that his movie was so visually oriented because he just finished working with Michael Bay on that 25th hour or 25, whatever it was, the uh, Benghazi movie. Um, and it was like, okay, they just dive right into a quiet place. And you're like, I get it. This feels like a Michael Bay, like visual kind of movie, but with a lot more character study. And he spent all that time on the office and it's like, okay, that makes sense. It's pretty cool to watch, man. It's cool to see how people pull because this business isn't, there's no structure. There's mm -hmm. no, there's no formula. We can read a hundred books on how to do these fucking things, but it isn't until you're experiencing it, whether you're, uh, you know, working with an acting coach or I think even beyond that, if you're on set and you're experiencing the stress and you're experiencing the time frame in which you have to create these things, you start building your toolbox. You start building this kit that is the go-to for when shit gets crazy. Um, and, it, and then that becomes your style, you know? Yeah. I, and I agree. It's, um, you know, one thing that I always, I was, you know, I talked to my friends about, you know, all of us are in the same, same thought is, uh, you know, classes, you know, acting classes is very, I think it's important. You, you learn a lot there, but you can never learn in class what you do on set. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, it's you have to actually do it. I mean, you have to, you know, feel it and, and see it and experience it. And I, I feel like you can go to all the classes you want, but it won't prepare you for actually being there and doing it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. No, I completely agree, dude. Uh, no matter what, whether you're an actor, whether you're a, a set dresser or, or a writer or director, like being able to see it play out in real time, being able to see and experience it with all the craziness that is life, that it ultimately shapes movies. Life shapes movies, no matter how hard you prep them. Life just puts its fucking dirty fingers in there and, and uh, pushes you around and makes it what it's supposed to be. Um, so... I agree, dude, completely. Um, so then how did you start getting cast? So what was the first movie that you were on? Like first feature? First feature. Um, I actually did. I was working on a film. It was called uh, poison sky. Mm -hmm. Um, it was like a, uh, conspiracy theory film. And I was playing this, this young doctor who, um, was who was helping all these young people in this small town that were coming down with these strange illnesses. <laughs> and, um, it was, um, so it was me. And then the, the bad guy, actually the two bad guys in it were, um, Kevin Sorbo and Glenn Plummer. <laughs> That's cool. And, um, yeah. So it was, it was neat. It was, uh, it was fun to work on it. And, um, I don't know something, there were some legal issues with it. Um, that happened in post mm -hmm. and, um, it's just been, it's been just, uh, sitting in post for years. Uh, that's going to be so disappointing as a performer and something like that. Cause you have absolutely zero control over any of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know what ended up happening. I just know that the, the producers, there were some disagreements between the producers and then there were some lawsuits and, and then next thing you know, it's just shelved. And, um, 
I don't know. I don't know what will ever end up happening with it, but that was my first feature. Um, and it was my first lead. So it was, it was cool. That's cool, man. That's cool. Um, um, but yeah, all those, you know, yeah, that was my first like real, real film. I mean, I did all those films growing up, you know, yeah. student film as a kid and all that. But yeah, as far as my first professional job, that was, that was it. And then I did, um, were you nervous on that set? Do you remember your first day? Oh yeah. I remember my first day. I remember I had a huge, um, it was a huge cast day. We had like nine actors on set and, mm -hmm. um, it was this big dinner scene and it was like, I remember it was like nine pages we were shooting <laughs> and, you know, everyone was in on it. So it was like, I remember we went through rehearsal to, and blocking and all that took a bunch of times. Cause we had, um, you know, granted I had been, I'd been on camera a bunch. Um, yeah. so I, I had an idea of what I was doing, but there were a few actors on there that had no prior training. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, I remember going through rehearsal. It was like getting the timing down, um, you know, of the, the conversation with the, all of the people sitting around a dinner table. That's comp dinner tables are like one of the most complicated fucking things to shoot, but yeah. Oh yeah. It was very complicated and having two actors that had never been on screen before, um, really made that difficult. And, um, but our, our director was, was very calm and, and he had a really nice demeanor about him and he, he really worked them, you know, to a point where they were feeling more comfortable and we, we got the shots down. But, um, I remember that was my first day on that film. <laughs> and, uh, I just remember in my mind thinking like, Oh no, like this, this might be a long movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, which is interesting because I'm always curious, you know, because whenever I talk to actors, sure. actors are generally, they, they generally don't want to be 100% honest with the director, right? Because they, the, the, the fact that they got the role is like a thing and they're like, yes, and I want to be there for the director all the time and I want to make sure that I'm not complaining about anything. So whenever I see actors at the end of the day when we're shooting, I'm always like checking in, like, how you doing? How was your day? Like, how you feeling? And, and sometimes you just see it in their eyes where they're just like, everything was great. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, did sure. you, did you go home and cry in the bathtub? Like what happened? <laughs> what happened last sure. night? Um, sure. it, it's, it's very true. And then I started to, then I've produced a few features now. Mm -hmm. And so as an actor as well, so I was an actor on it and I was a producer on it and that was a very interesting cause that's a whole different thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in since development and through pre-production and all that. And I'm, I'm part of the actual production. And then I show up on set and it's like having both hats on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like that, that's actually a challenge. So I remember the first time I, I was dabbling in direct, I mean, under in uh, producing and acting. That's when I thought to myself, Wow the Clint Eastwoods and the <laughs> Matt, you know, Ben Affleck's that act direct and produce. And like, I was like, hats off to them because I don't even know how they do it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
because you have to swap those hats and you got to come in and out of it. Right. So like, it's like yeah. you, you have to know your character, you have to do all your homework, you have to do all that stuff. And then also go from the fact that you just got really upset about some, something on set that will automatically ha happen. You know, anytime you're not, I always say the calmest parts of, of a shoot for me is when I call action in between action and cut, because the rest of the world has to shut up for at least that period of time. And then as soon as you call cut, like everything is trying to shut the movie down. Everybody's trying to, you know, fuck with things. And so I can't imagine being an actor that has to stay in the emotion of the scene and then cut, hold on, and then have a conversation about producing. That's fucking nightmare, dude. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's intense. Very intense. So, um, um, well, this is... This has been good. How, where are we at? We're, we're, we're pushing the end of this thing, but we're not there yet. You you doing good on time? I'm doing great on time. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so then you did the first film, um, which <laughs> ultimately didn't get released. Um, so then how did you keep getting work? Was it Were you going and doing auditions often, or was it word of mouth? Like, how did you keep getting hard? Um. Yeah, I, I just I, I kept I kept auditioning. I, I got um, at that point I had I had signed with um, an agent at that point, and I was I was going out a bunch and nice and um, yeah, and then it was just kind of jumping into that um, you know situation where now it's like I'm I'm reading for you know film and TV and, and all kinds of stuff and. Um, that's uh, that's when it you know became exciting for me. I you know, I, I read for some really cool stuff and and um, I ended book I ended up booking a few um, you know films that went to festivals and I, I got to play some really interesting characters. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when I kind of started realizing like you know what I really kind of want to follow down the footsteps of like a Viggo Mortensen or a Johnny Depp or a Gary Oldman where. Um, I can do the leading roles cause I, I fit the leading man type, but I really love diving into these characters mm -hmm. and that's, that's where I kind of figured it out. I was like, you know what? That's the kind of acting I want to do. I, um, I had a long conversation with, uh, um, Peter Stormare about it and he was talking uh, about making that decision. Um, and I think it's a valuable because everybody wants to be, at least it seems that way. Whenever someone is like, I'm going to be an actor, I'm going to be Bruce Willis, I'm going to be Tom Cruise. And the, the truth of the matter is, is not everybody can be that person. And then the second truth to that is, is I don't think once you do it, or once you understand what it is, I don't think you would want to be that person because you're literally, most leads are there to carry the role. Most leads are often there because of their looks or because of their prior experience or because of how they how the world views that person. And then on top of it, the leads are oftentimes the most watered down vanilla version of any character in the piece. Like having the ability to, to, to be a character actor where you can come in no stress and basically flourish a part that oftentimes is, is not even thought about. Like you look at these character spots and you go, um, I can make this into something. And without stressing out the whole production, the production's not writing on me to do this. So I can do that, which I think is so much fun and so valuable. And then as you look back on films, for me at least, I look back and I remember all the character actors more than I remember the leads. 
Um, because yeah. I, I think the contributions that they have to cinema are more important than a lot of elites, you know? Sure. Yeah, I agree. And he's, he's a, um, he's a great actor. Mm -hmm. I like Stormare. He's great. Yeah, man. He's the shit. <laughs> he's a lot of fun and he's a fun guy to talk to. I enjoy him. Actually, he's a really fun guy to talk to in real life. That's, um, yeah, he's, he's great. I mean, everything I've, everything I've ever seen of his. Um, yeah. I mean, like he, he goes into detail on, on, on his whole process on the show that we did together. But, um, yeah, he, like the thing I liked the most about him is that he was always about, not motivation, but where's my character coming from? What does my character need? And where's my character coming from? And as he sort of explained that to me, I looked back at all of his characters and all of his films and I went, fuck, that's what makes everything so great about your guy. Like your, your character in Fargo, he was hungry the whole time, the whole time. Even when he was feeding Steve Buscemi into the wood chipper, I still bought that he was trying to do it quick enough so he can go buy pancakes because he wanted to get those pancakes. Yeah, you know it's like yeah he's fucking genius and it's it's such a simple thing to do um and i find it to be more important than remembering your lines i mean yes i want you to remember your lines because it slows the whole fucking shoot day down but i think that walking in with that kind of motivation or that that ability to uh create something that is beyond what is on the page that is beyond what i've thought about and to simply come in after doing your homework and go like, what if this guy really wants some fucking pancakes? And you're like, huh, show me, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's cool shit. No, it, it, it's, it's so true. And you, you see that with, um, well, some of these actors, it's like, you know, for example, I, when I first saw, um, uh, true romance. Oh yeah. Fuck. Yeah. You know, when I first saw Gary Oldman in that, <laughs> I thought to myself, there is no way that is who they imagined that character to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think that anyone could have in their mind imagined that the character that Gary Oldman ended up playing was going to be the character that it ended up being. Like, <laughs> I think that's just another actor that is just so creative and you know, is not afraid of taking big risks. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's the same thing as Buscemi. It's like, yeah. You know, so it's so interesting that going back and watching that scene, the little intricacies of, of Oldman and that, or even Oldman in um, Leon, the professional. Oh, he's ama That's amazing. That's where I first saw him was in that movie. Oh, he's so good. I mean, every little nuance of his character, it's like there's way more going on internally of that character than what you're seeing on screen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so fascinating. And it's, you know, those are the kind of actors. It's like, I, I think, you know, being, being an artist, it's like, that's who, that's who I want to be. I want to be the actor that, you know, you're watching the movie and you're like, I wonder what he's thinking about. Cause it's obviously not the lines. He's, he's like, He's somewhere else. He's thinking about what that character is really doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's crazy. And then you become fascinated with them. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the best part about those character actors. And then you just, 
you're wanting to continue them in the scenes. And there have been times where I've cast people for smaller parts and they do such a great job building that character and they become so interesting that I'm like, we got to write more of this person in. There needs to be more of this person in this movie because I want to see them more, which means the audience is going to want to see them more, um, which is keeping the audience enthralled to it. Like, I, I firmly believe that tone and, and like moments are what outlive movies like they that is what we all go back to watch like i don't go back to watch ghostbusters because of its plot you know like the overall story like i get it i don't go back that's not why i go back and watch that movie i go back and watch that movie for that moment where dan Aykroyd sees the ghost and he's backing up and the cigarettes dangling off his lip you know it's mm -hmm. it's those little moments that that stick with you forever and it's character actors that do those moments mm-hmm yeah. Sure. yeah 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 i think you made a smart decision dude <laughs> oh well thank you yeah I, you know it's like you know i see those guys also taking on lots of different things which i think is also great it's like i i feel like a lot of the the really memorable roles are the you know the characters i mean even you know like uh woody harrelson mm -hmm. um i remember that movie into the furnace Oh, I don't think um, I've seen that one. It's um, it's a Scott Cooper film, mm -hmm. uh, and it's uh, Christian Bale, um, uh, and then Christian Bale is the the main good guy, and then Casey Affleck. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember. Yeah, Willem Dafoe. Um, but it's like, you know, it's it's a good movie, but I mean, honestly, it's like you watch Woody Harrelson in that, and that. It's just. He's such an interesting character. Yeah. Um, you know, he's another one. I, I think Woody can play almost anything. He, uh, he's a really interesting character. And it's fascinating, too, because if you look at his history, he had to overcome being the slow guy at the bar at Cheers, which, yeah. was, which was so interesting. And for, I think it was, for me, I think it was Natural Bone Killers that sort of broke him from that. It was him working with Oliver Stone and doing that movie that I went, this guy's dangerous. Oh, okay. Like that was the big pivot moment for me with him. Sure. Um, you know? Um, yeah. And it's, you know, another one that's very interesting. I feel like his choices are always so interesting. Uh, Benicio del Toro. I love Benicio. I love He's him. Such an interesting actor. Um, you know, I mean him and him and Sicario. I, I love the story of, um, when the when uh, he got the script, he cut out a vast majority of his lines. Yeah, yeah. And um, I remember when he brought the script back with his notes, they're like, uh, "You you cut out like half of your dialogue." And he was like, "I know," because I did it intentionally. Because he said, "This character, you think he would trust a bunch of agents?" <laughs> and it's like, "Well, that's a really good point." And when you watch that film it has such a power to it. His, his stoic silence in that film. Yeah. His physical acting and his energy on screen is just, it's terrific. Dude. I, I mean, I think the, one of my favorite movies with that is uh, way of the gun with him and uh, Ryan Philippi was in that. And mm. that one, 
Holy shit. Like that one, it feels like it's an old Sam Peckinpah movie. I think it was directed by the guy who wrote Usual Suspects. I may be wrong by that, but I think it was directed by the guy who wrote Usual Suspects. And um, it's him just being super quiet throughout that whole movie and his presence. You could see him taking that technique or those tricks into traffic and into... Uh, Sicario, like you, you feel like he was learning that back in the indie days. And I mean, uh, usual suspects kind of, but he was kind of playing a weird character in that with a weird voice thing, which he was then using again when he did the Marvel stuff later on. So I feel like Benicio goes one of two ways where he's either like very stoic and quiet and mm-hmm. like, like very present, or he's like trying to go off the fucking deep end with some crazy voices and stuff, which sometimes he's really good in that too. I, I, but I like his stoic stuff more than I like that. I think. Sure. No, I absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's another one. He's just great. Um, yeah. Yeah. I agree, dude. And I, I feel like he kind of falls in that same category of he can be your leading man or he can be your character guy. Yeah, because he's so good at both, and he's great. I mean, I think the parts that he's good as a leading man is almost where it's like a character actor leading man. You know, like it. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think he would. I don't think he'd work as well as like you know the lead in Mission Impossible. You know, and I it, agree. It that's, has to be. True. It has to be very sort of character oriented. Um, well, as we continue here, like uh, we should probably wrap it up soon. Um, okay. But I wanted to talk to you. So you've spent all this time, you've built these skills, and then you uh, get put in movies. And then it seems like most of the stuff that you've done has been, um, you know, sort of low budget uh, indie uh, feature stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself hitting sort of a ceiling as far as casting is concerned? Do you find it hard for you to get to the next level? Is it do you, like? Is it because you're not? going out for smaller parts and larger movies? Like, how do you find that transition? Is it difficult for you? I mean, it, it's been, um, I've been going, I mean, a lot of the stuff I go out for are larger roles in not leads, but like large supporting in larger projects. Right. And I just feel like that also is difficult because you're also, you're also going against actors that are very seasoned in, that you know in in big stuff right so it's i feel like that's a it's a difficult thing because i mean ultimately as an actor you want to go out for that stuff but you're also going against people that have heavy resumes in large jobs at that point right and then they also have relationships with casting folks and it's it's also a relationship game a big part of it absolutely yeah 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 now, because I've seen your work and your work is great, and I can see you um, hustling and 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 looking for the best parts. It's just I think a lot of folks don't really think about it when they look at um, specific type of movies. How difficult it is to make that jump from that yeah. to this, and there's a it isn't talent based. It's it's connection based. It's it's uh, you know all these outside Hollywood. Uh, uh, obstacles that you have to get over, you know? Sure. Do you feel that way too? Is it, do you feel like that's been an issue with you? And, and are you, are you still trying to make an active effort to cross over into that? And are you trying new techniques for that or? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely actively trying to cross that 
you know, cross that line and get more into more of the mainstream, larger projects, uh, whether it be film or TV. Um, I mean, that's really where my, you know, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I love the fact that indie allows you to have a lot of creative freedom, but, um, you know, I'd really like to get into some of these, some of these big projects, you know, where, you know, obviously like, you know, like we saw with, you know, some of the movies we mentioned, Yeah, it's like getting in projects like that, that are just iconic and so many great actors. It's like, I would love the opportunity to, to work opposite of a Gary Oldman or a Johnny Depp or, a, you know, Viggo Mortensen. Cause I, I feel like just the amount of not even just technical knowledge, but artistic knowledge yeah. you would gain from just working opposite someone like that. I feel would be such an incredible experience. Yeah. Yeah. My buddy Lance, who's been on the show, Lance Williams, he's had the ability to work opposite, uh, uh, Denzel Washington, and he's had the ability to work opposite um, Leonardo DiCaprio, and he walks off those sets, and he's changed because he gets all that influence and that experience. And it isn't just the experience from that actor, but all the directors that that actor has worked with, and all that knowledge that those people have. It's funny how in that in our industry, it's really, <laughs> it's like it's almost like getting COVID. You know what I mean? You sort of go into sure. a space, you work with these people, and you walk out there infected with new knowledge, which is interesting. Sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, I got to wrap this up. It's uh, It's been really fun talking to you, Tyler. I really appreciate it, dude. Yeah, no, I, it, this has been a blast. I'm glad uh, I was able to come on and join you. Yeah, man. I was, I was, I'm happy that we were finally able to make it work. And um, I would say, as we get to the end of the episode, I would ask you, is there... Um, is there advice that you would give an actor, uh, before going on their first day, their first scene, their first set, like, what would you tell them? If you could go back in time and tell yourself this, what would you tell them? First scene and first set. Um, like your first day, do you remember, you remember your first day? Is there some, could you go back and give yourself, let's play it that way. Can you go back and give yourself advice for your first day? I remember. Okay. Uh, this is a, this is definitely a performance note. Um, I always look back and say, you know what? You always have more time than you think. Mm. Um, you know, you, you always, you know, when you first get on there, you get, you get those, you know, those butterflies, those nerves. And sometimes you rush, you rush a line or you rush a scene. And it's like, you got to remember, there's always more time, take more time. Because a lot of times, um, when you take time and you experience a scene is when you find that performance magic. Yeah. And it's like, I, I just remember as a young actor, sometimes I would, I would get a little bit too excited and I wouldn't take the time to really experience the scene. And, you know, you always think sometimes you got to just, Oh, my line's coming up. I got to deliver instead of, you know, settling in the moment, taking your time. And then once you're really there, then, then get in. I I see that a lot with young actors. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of the stress of the set, and, and there's usually an AD that's running around pulling his his or her hair out and just going, "Guys, we're out of fucking time." It, <laughs> yes. it, yeah, dude, all that all that anxiety, and you know, as a director, I try to keep that anxiety from the actors because at the end of the day, if you guys don't fucking find it, you know, 
it, like we're, sure. just, we're just shooting nothing, <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah, no, it's, and you know, it's funny. My, my coach always reiterates that too. I've, I've heard him say that so many times before uh, one of his actors goes on set. He always says, remember, you have more time than you think. Um, in, you know, in actually in a scene. Um, and he said a lot of times when he would be um, sitting in on, on a session, you know, when they were, he would be helping a studio or whatever, choose between their, their actors. A lot of times he would look at who was, who was having the more real experience in the audition. Mm. But a lot of times it was the actor that took the time to actually experience the scene. And he always reminds actors, like when you get on, when you get on camera and you're doing that scene, remember to actually live it, to actually experience it and take that time. There it is. Today's episode with Tyler. Um, Cool dude, man. Uh, him and I met on Instagram. We've been chatting for quite some time. I was fascinated with his history. I was fascinated with the fact that he played hockey and then transitioned into acting. Um, and uh, man, I'm happy we chatted. Cool guy. It's it's always interesting to hear um, the process that people pick as actors, like what method they sort of fall into and what they pull from that method. Um, and as a director, it's kind of our job to uh identify that pretty early on so this is kind of like a conversation you were kind of involved in a conversation that i would have had meeting an actor like if we were uh if we had finally cast an actor if i like somebody then i would you know probably go out and have beers or have a meal and then have this conversation so um uh, i like him i think he's great uh i can't wait he's gonna send me some of his new stuff um and i'll post links uh, for pictures and trailers and all sorts of stuff on inlovewiththeprocess.com on today's show's page. Um, so you guys will be able to check out his work. Um, I think he's a cool dude. So a lot of young uh, directors that are out there, keep him in mind. Um, and, uh, you know, you never know. And it's, it's always great to find solid talent from the indie world, um, for, especially for these character actor positions, because these are, you know, you always have those roles that, the producers for your piece are never really thinking about and you can kind of texture them with really good talent um and i'm always on the lookout for that so thank you for listening uh plenty of episodes on the way like i said i'm gonna be recording a bunch of episodes all week try to stack this queue up uh i am headed back to the east coast at the end of august i'm going up to um upstate new hampshire for a bachelor party which is going to be insane imagine this it's a bachelor party with like how many pit masters six pit masters five pit masters plus a james beard nominated chef uh i'm gonna get fat <laughs> just put it that way uh and then i head back down to boston we're gonna spend a couple days in boston uh in august um so any of you boston buddies of ours that hear me talking about this on the show we will be in town for a short period of time gina and i will be there and then i head to the cape and I actually have like the tail end of a Cape Cod summer, which I haven't had since I was a kid. Um, so I'm excited to go stay with my brother and do all that stuff. So that's where I'll be headed in August. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention, um, I just, I don't know if, when this episode's coming out. So it could have been two weeks ago. But you, you guys see when I post, I go out drinking and we go on like mini bar safaris throughout Los Angeles. 
keep your eyes out. If you love your favorite bar, look in the bathroom, any bathrooms that allow for stickers. I'm always going in there and maybe I'm putting stickers up. I don't know. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but um, you'll see places that I frequent uh, when you see an ILWP sticker kicking around somewhere. So uh, kind of fun stuff. Leaving a trail, which could follow me back to me and get me in trouble, I suppose. But, you know, whatever. They're just stickers. Um, But anyway, that's what's up. Thanks for listening to the show, everybody. Um, And as always, I will see you next Tuesday.